Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo Blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Tamo sadanto suchedo ye vlahudi sanmeyasanputoshi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's the 26th of November, 2011. We're here in Berkeley, California. We're going to look into the third ground of the Ten Grounds chapter in the Avatamsaka Sutra. So please turn to the front cover of your text and... We'll uh, recite the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And we do it in Chinese. Uh, we're, one of these days we'll have it all ready to go in English, and it'll sound, it'll bring in that same uh, invocation spirit. Namo Oh, yeah. 
Please turn to page 46, 46 and 47. Okay, uh, we're on the uh, second line in the Chinese, Jian Zhu Zhong Sheng Sui Sheng Si Liu. And that is the third, the third um, short paragraph in the English. So, one, two, three, four, five, line five in the English, third paragraph. Okay, we're on, so in other words, it's the second line in the middle in the Chinese. Jian Zhu Zhong Shang Sui Shang Suliu Jian Zhu Zhong Shang Sui Shang Turn to page 47. He sees that all beings flow with birth and death, and he feels sympathy. He sees that all beings lose the means to liberation, and he feels sympathy. These are the ten. Yeah, we dropped that sentence from the text. These are the ten. Okay. Our Bodhisattva on the uh, third ground has been using his prajna wisdom. He's been using his X-ray wisdom eyes to see through the surface of things. His prajna wisdom eyes uh, are able to uh, make connections. One way that I've explained this in, in the past, one way that it made sense to me in the past was, when you have prajna wisdom, you can see any seed and know what fruit it bears. You can see the first step and know the destination. Likewise, with this wisdom, you can see any result and understand its cause. Uh, That's the uh, one aspect 
of prajna. Certainly it's not the whole thing. Because the difference with prajna wisdom is that it can hold two opposites in mind at the same time. For example, existence and non-existence, form and emptiness. The prajna wisdom sees both of those and understands how they don't cancel each other out. Prajna wisdom can look at duality and not not be forced to choose one or the other, but can contextualize in the mind that holds both opposites. Puts that in context. They can they can see uh, complete contradictions and understand that the mind is the only thing that makes those. They're in nature. Everything is in harmony. Seasons don't collide in nature. Spring gradually makes its way to summer. Summer slowly turns to autumn, etc. So Prajna wisdom is able to, in this instant, see the causes that brought together this table and understand that they don't exist at all. And yet, here it is. There's no, there's no contradiction in that. So the Bodhisattva has been doing that. He's been using that kind of penetrating X-ray vision going through the surface of things. Something blows up right in front of him. Somebody in his family just explodes in rage. And the Bodhisattva, instead of being offended, or being instead of reacting to the details of the, of the issue at hand, is able <clears throat> to see that the person who's so angry has been having a bad day. That person is, is afflicted there. They're not at peace for various reasons. It has nothing to do with the bodhisattva. And he can put that situation into a context and not respond with emotion, thereby dousing the potential flames, keeping the relationship intact, and uh, scoring big points with the person who blew up but then felt so embarrassed that they had done that. And often that's, that's true, that if we can keep our cool when people are, are uh, losing their temper around us, when the storm has passed, there's, they are so impressed with your ability to not be moved by their anger and to allow them to calm down again. So that's a huge gift to have this kind of X-ray vision uh, in all situations, human and and inhuman, that is to say, in the world around humanity. Okay, so the Bodhisattva is using that on the world, and he sees everything is made of rapidly changing conditions. The, um, in the Mahayana tradition, they call the three seals of Dharma, the, the three seals like to seal a package, the three imprints, the three uh, signature qualities of dharmas is what? Ku kong wu chang wu They are, in, in Chinese they say, unsatisfying, empty, not self, and transient. All things, all things are not me. All things, all things pass on, come and go, because they're made of other stuff. And as a result of that, we call them empty. That is to say, free of any essence, free of any final non-reducible seed that is just that thing. Nothing. There's nothing like that. So they, when you grab them, they're unsatisfying. So, empty, 
unsatisfying, not self, and passing on. Okay. The Bodhisattva sees that and says, oh my goodness, that's true. That's really true. It's true of my body. It's true of, of my mother's body and her mother's body. And, and so where did I come from, if that's true? Here I am, but where did I come from? Interesting. So the Bodhisattva can do that. And we've been finding out about that. Then the sutra takes us one step further. The Bodhisattva looks at beings around him and says, they don't get that. They're stuck in the middle of a play and don't know it's a play. They take it as real. And these are people I care about. And every time that happens to them, they hurt a lot. And so it says, ten times in a row, the Bodhisattva feels sympathy for them. The Bodhisattva feels sympathy. He commiserates. He sees their pain. I feel your pain, he says. I know how it is. I get it. And he... We've got two more on that list of ten to go. And then we get a conclusion. We get the, the summary, which is the paragraph to go. Okay? So we... This all sound familiar? Because we've been doing this for several weeks now. It says, Jian zhu zhong sheng sui sheng si liu sheng ai min qin he sees, literally, if you want to look at the Chinese, you non-Chinese readers here, Jian sees all Zhongsheng, sentient, literally multitude-born, beings born of a multitude of conditions, follow birth, death, flow. Samsara. This, is some, this probably was samsara in the Sanskrit. The flow of samsara. And they liken birth and death to a river because liu is also the word that can be used for a river um, these checks are so rich that we kind of go by so fast if you wanted to stop right there and spend as long as it took until we understood that this is not our only life it would probably be worth it it would be a really useful helpful uh, difficult challenge to, to make that real why? Because we don't remember. We forget. We forget. Um, I was... sitting with a, a group. Our, monk, our novice monks. Sitting with our novice monks in Ukiah at Tathagata Monastery. And these are 11 uh, young men who were already committed to becoming monastics. They're, they're in their first phases. And with them were three, three trainees, people who were um, not yet ordained, but wanted to become. And the passage we were explaining was from an essay, an essay from the Qing dynasty called Exhortation to Make the Bodhi Resolve, exhorting people to resolve on Bodhi, on, Bodhi, on waking up. And the essay was talking all about the suffering of samsara, how miserable samsara is. And the author, I mean, this is, this is real dukkha. He wasn't trying to make it psychologically attractive or, you know, politically correct. He was saying, you know what? It's a lot of pain. Having a body is pain. Oh, you know, coming out is being in your mother's womb for nine months is pain for you and for her. And then you come out, you know what it's like? It's like having like, being a turtle and having your shell ripped off your back while you're alive. Hurts. Pain. 
<laughs> you read this, oh my God. And then he takes you out of the human realm into the realm of animals, and he talks about the pain of animals and the misery of ghosts and the suffering in the hells. And he makes it really real, you know. He's determined to impress upon us how much misery it is going through what? Getting a body, living in it, having it age, losing it, and getting another one. Getting another one. So I said on the spot to all the young monks, the novice, I said, no, you all have been hearing this since you first drew near the Buddha Dharma. How many of you have come from Buddhist families? Well, half. You know, because they were mostly all uh, Asian or Asian American. Their parents were Buddhists. Okay, so you've heard about rebirth for a very long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Do any of you have any memory, any sense of having been here before? Any of you? Do any of you, like, when you came here in your lifetime, have you met anybody who you had the sense that you knew them before. Do you have any clues, I said, that this is not your only lifetime? Or do you just take it entirely on faith? You know, it's like, these are, they're on their way to becoming big shoes, right? So these are kind of the people who have, should be cold on the Dharma, you know, just got it down. And two out of 12, and then three, three trainees, 15 men in the room, two raised their hands. And one of them said, yeah. He says, I know. He said, who was it? He says, my wife. He says, and, and my son. He said, we have been Dharma friends for lifetime after lifetime. Every time we come back to help each other out. And he said it with his heart, you know, his big smile on his face. And all you could do is say, Good on you, mate. You know, <laughs> good stuff. No, there's no, no sense of, oh, come on. You know, no, no, no. He said, I just know. He said, we've been Dharma friends for lifetimes. We're all, we always come back and help each other out. He's gone. Cool. <laughs> you know, that's nice. But two out of 15. Now, some of them were nodding, so, you know, maybe didn't even hear the question, you know. <laughs> some of them were probably a little embarrassed, you know, and kind of didn't, didn't, didn't know if they dared tell me the story because they don't know really who I am all this time, yeah. but uh, all the same it was interesting that these people you know who are kind of varsity varsity Dharma people right this is the front the, the first team Dharma folks admitted that mostly we still take it on faith so now I don't want to stop here we have to get on with the lecture but I'm tempted I'm tempted to, uh, to kind of open this up and, and look into it and think about it. how many of us, you know, because for sure, I mean, yes, the Buddha Dharma is based on the idea of reincarnation, that this is not our only life. We have lived before, we have lived, we will live again. This is one of many successions, a succession of many lives. Okay, that's really the way we see it. And not only does Buddhism see it this way, but the Buddha was raised in a Brahmanic world where Brahmanism, that's Hinduism's uh, deeper roots, is Brahmanism. Which, you know, we know about the caste system and we know about um, karma, 
And a lot of the ideas that are prevalent in the world came through those that cluster of beliefs in India that we now call Hinduism. You understand that Hindus do not call themselves Hindus. Right? Hinduism is a Western word applied to, to a, a number of faith traditions in India. Brahmanist is pretty close, although that's more a social description than it is a religious description. So in that old, 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 old tradition, they say what? Yes, many lifetimes, many, many lifetimes, not just one. But what do they say? They say there's, there's no movement from one to the next. Ants are always ants. Brahmins are always Brahmins. The notion that ants can become Brahmins or the Brahmins could become ants? No. You didn't hear it right. You haven't learned it yet. That's not what the Vedas say. So the Buddha comes along and turns that on its head. The Buddha comes along and says, "Ah, no. Don't cling to that either. That's just clinging. No different than clinging to fame, clinging to, to a loved one. It's equally going to, to explode in your face when, when the conditions ripen. So this is a system that says, yes, we live many, many times. Okay, do you believe it? You don't have to say yes or no, but ask yourself. One, one particular answer could be, mm, prove it. You know, some people might say, says who? Well, the Buddha. The Buddha says, you know. And we take that as an item of faith, don't we? I mean, it's the foundation of so much else. The whole ethical system. It's based on the idea that there is results from actions. So, here we are. In a, the problem is what? I don't remember what I was. But I, it makes sense to me that it wouldn't be a linear system that you start here, you travel there, and you jump off. And that's it. That, I don't see anything in nature that replicates that. There aren't straight lines in nature. Right? Just go take a walk in the woods. Show me a straight line. You know, well, redwood trunks. Okay, there you go. Stalks and leaves. You know, you pull a leaf off here and you'll see this beautiful straight line on the, the stem that goes up into the, what do they call it, the, the veins of the leaf. That's pretty straight. But everything else is spiraled or elegantly arced. You know, circular. Hills go up. Really flat land rare. Even riverbanks curve. So, how interesting. Why would human lifespan, not just human, why would sentient creatures come in and go out and never to return? What makes more sense to me is the notion of Newton's law of thermodynamics, the third, right? Matter is neither created nor destroyed, but it changes. So matter comes to energy, energy goes to matter. If that doesn't make sense, think of water, steam, condensing on a, on a glass, on the lid of your teacup. Here, right there. Steam, drip, right? So it'll drip down back into the teacup, it just did. 
Here's water. It was steam a minute ago. You know, so it's like that. Isn't that, you know, why wouldn't everything obey that law? That's observable. That was actually codified by a Western European scientist. So that's kind of the way I understand it. Now, Master Hua would say, you know, he was ready for, for that question because people ask. Inquiring minds, east and west, past and present, ask. And he'd say, he'd say, do you believe that you had a past life? Do you believe you'll have a future life? And if you'd say, well, Zhu, I don't know. <laughs> Meaning, I have a doubt. I don't know, right? What was Shirvu saying? He would say, do you believe that you were alive yesterday? I think I remember it. Do you believe that you'll be alive tomorrow? Mm, my experience is, chances are, yes. He said, okay, why would past lives be any different? And he would say, can you tell me what you had for lunch last week, last Saturday? Today is a Saturday. No. He said, well, then you forgot last life just the same. So it's like, that's interesting. It seems a little tricky. No, it's a pretty good answer. Because why? We're not going to remember. Until we cultivate a way, the, there's a, a, a phrase that they have in Chinese, which is, what is it? Lun tai zhi mi. Good tai zhi mi. The ignorance of the womb. What does that mean? Where, where, is our, where are our memories kept? Our memories are kept, you might say, in the brain, possibly. That's our, pretty much our physiological understanding. Our, where's our short-term memory? Short-term memory is coded in there somewhere. But a lot of our memory is tied to senses. I, I remember how hot that was that summer. I remembered how much it hurt to fall off my skateboard and skim my knee. Um, I remembered the happiness of my birthday party and hearing my friends say happy birthday and sing happy birthday. I remember the flavor of the stuffed squash that replaced the turkey on Thanksgiving. You know, Sense-based memory. Okay, when we die, those senses go away. We lose them. So where would your memory of a past life kept, if not in the, when you don't have the senses. When we go through the womb, we remove, we lose a lot of our body-based memories. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. So that's why we forget, is rebirth. Actually coming through mom's delivery, reproductive system, we chuck our old memories and start start fresh. Erase the blackboard and start over. Now, karma, not so. The deeds that we do, the invisible repercussions, the good and the bad about actions, those go into what's called the eighth consciousness. Those sustain. They're invisible. They manifest when the time is right, like seeds in the ground, but we don't see them. Okay, so... Master Hua would say, if you 
can accept the fact that you had a yesterday, although it's not today, is it? And it's also not tomorrow, then you can pretty much remember there was this thing we called yesterday. And it's a continuum. You know, I went to sleep, I woke up, the sun went around, the earth rotated. So we know that there was a passage of time. But we called that one yesterday. My spinning hands on my watch told me that they went around again. But I don't remember it. Kind of, you know. You would say, past lives are no different. We die, it's like going to sleep. We're born, it's like waking up. Time has passed, we're back. But it's one flow, he would say. So, interesting. It's like, uh, never thought of it that way. So, I just want to make sure. The reason why I'm doing this excursion, digression, is... The sutra is so rich, and we go past these huge ideas and go, yeah, 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 got it. We don't, got it, right? But we could, we can. It's worth it because it's this is you know this is the gee whiz dharma that I just brings people in the door, looking up and counting the stars. Anybody watch the launch from Cape, Cape Kennedy Canaveral? Anybody? Nobody watched the launch today. Heard it. Okay, yeah. This was the largest uh, manned vehicle, they call it, that's the language, ever to go into space. The next Mars rover was shot aloft on a Saturn booster this morning. Heading for Mars. Being a good technological monk, I followed it on Twitter. I didn't see it either, but it happened at like 8.30, and I, it went off. It made it. The clouds parted, and up it went. So it's heading for Mars. What's the name of the the rover this time? Curiosity. Curiosity. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Heading off towards Mars. So, um, there we are, just, just following these huge, huge ideas and how do we understand them? You know, have we been here before? Will we be here again? Are we aware of our life now? You know, so like yesterday, today and tomorrow. He sees that all beings flow with birth and death and he feels sympathy. Today uh, at lunch, today we had a really s- small group at, at the monastery for lunch because so many people were at the uh, either the Chan at City of 10,000 Buddhas the three day Chan retreat or they're at Gold Mountain for the Emperor Liang's repentance or they're at Gold Sage for the Emperor Liang's repentance we have three big events going on in our monasteries in the Bay Area so smaller group at lunch and uh, we had uh, a uh, someone loaned us a copy of the BBC documentary on the life of the Buddha. It's a 50-minute documentary. Uh, produced mostly, it's by BBC, but the, a lot of the, the actors in it were Nepalese or um, Indian, and it was filmed in India, very much kind of focused on India. And it covered the span of the Buddha's life from uh, from 
entering the womb to enlightenment, and just then just after. Um, it didn't it didn't go much beyond that, and it was retelling the basic story, the basic Buddhist story, and it. We, we kind of picked it apart and talked about some of the things that could be improved, but by and large, I think everybody was impressed with it um, because it brought to life the, the basic details of the story. And it made clear how the prince was living in the lap of luxury. The prince was full of blessings, his life, but um, he walked out in order to to look around and his father's intent to keep him from seeing anything that would trigger impermanence failed. Curses. The boy saw old age, sickness, and death. And his mind just reeled because he was completely naive and innocent of that. But then the fourth messenger, and those are called the four messengers, right? The fourth messenger was the, the spiritual seeker, the ascetic, the uh, yogi, who was not content with simply dying, flow, following the flow of birth and death, but instead started to cultivate to overcome it, to transform that, to step out of that flow. And uh, that's the... That was the fourth messenger. And that's the moment. That's the moment when the story really takes a turn. Because the prince, who has just had his world shattered by the realization that he's going to die inevitably and have nothing to say about it, and all of his skills at wrestling, at debate, charioteering, horsemanship, archery, scholarship, his royal birth mean nothing. He's going to die. He's going to go. And in the face of that, he realizes, oh, you know, there is a choice. There is a path. And he decides to set out. So that's the big turning point. And the Christians call the Gospels, I don't know if you've ever uh, been part of a Christian community or have friends who let you sit in, but what do they call the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They call it Good news. Good news. Unshun, they say in Chinese. You know that, do you all know that? Every, every week we throw out four letters, more or less. Sometimes six, sometimes two. Because the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery is, is the new incarnation. Talk about rebirth. This is the incarnation of the former Chinese Church of the Nazarene. And we are on the mailing lists of dozens of Chinese Christian churches and publishing houses and newsletters. And they come, and they come, and they come. I gave some to James to open, and he was reading about the good news in Chinese. And there's a thriving Chinese Christian community. I mean, jumping China. And they, we, they still send us all their good news. And, and so that's how I know about it, you know. And uh, it's good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that if you're a Christian, it's that there is hope that God sent his only begotten son to die for our sakes so that our sins could be washed in his blood and we could be redeemed. So that's good news.
And it's a really good story. It works for a whole, whole big part of the world. The good news for the prince was that he didn't have to die. He had something to say about mortality. Imagine how he felt, you know, because those questions were burning in his mind, burning. Do I have to die? Is this all there is? Is this it? Do I have nothing to say? You know, is death the inevitable end of life? Yashodara, look at where life leads. Yashodara, I'm going to try to get free, he says. And here's somebody who did, who was on the path anyway. Um, it's not clear in the, in the BBC video documentary whether the, the practitioner, the, um, the ascetic that he sees, is just a uh, kind of setting out on the path or whether he's reached the end of the path, whether he's gotten liberated. But it doesn't dwell on that. But in any case, the prince realizes that there is a door, there is a road, there is a Tao, a path. And so he sets out to step out of the flow of birth and death, the river of birth and death. So the Bodhisattva, having done that, now feels sympathy for all the other fellow beings with whom he is connected deeply, who just heave a sigh and turn back to their houses in the village to wait for the sun to rise again so they can go to work. So he feels sympathy. Then the next line, He sees literally all beings lose liberation expedience, gives rise to Pity, sympathy, mind. These are the ten. Sure, wait, sure. So he sees the beings lose their expedience. They maybe knew how to meditate but stopped. Maybe they took refuge but then never went back. Maybe they took the precepts but just forgot, let them go, and didn't, didn't think about them again. Maybe they used to have really good friends who they would uh, talk at great length about things that matter, and then they stopped. And they, maybe they lived a clean life, but then started drinking. Maybe for some one reason or another, they started smoking or started using substances that altered their consciousness. Who knows what, what the Bodhisattva... Uh, is watching happen around him. Maybe they are people who ate a plant-based diet but then met a doctor who missed the, the two courses on nutrition that were part of his medical education and the doctor insists that they eat meat and drink milk because after all, that's where all the nutrition is. And, and so they retreat and start loading up their bodies again with stuff that hurts them. You know, so they lose the means to liberation. Um, it's we uh, had a, a big feast here on Thanksgiving, and I, as I went up, and we the monks, you know, get there, take their offerings, receive the offerings first. And as I got there, 
the, uh, the color and the variety and the presentation and the, the out-and-out beauty of the food groaning on that tray, on that counter, required me to pull out my camera and take a photograph before I put it in my bowl. <sighs> it's just astounding. And uh, Julia did the same thing. And her picture is better than mine somehow. But luckily, that's why I carry a phone, you know. This is an okay camera on the spot. What do they say? The camera in your hand is the best camera in the world. Right? The one that's in your gadget bag don't count, you know. The camera in your hand, the one you actually use is the, the best camera for you. Because why? You're going to get a picture of that. So I got it. And I haven't posted it on the blog yet. But it's stunning that the amount the variety, the, the beauty, the nutrition, the energy coming off that food. It's radiant food. You know, it is, it's just, you know, you put it in your body and you're just energized. And I never had that feeling at a steakhouse. Let me get a picture of the surf and turf. You know, the lobsters there. A big chunk of flesh simmering in its juices. And if it cools a little bit, the grease just starts to, you know. You know, it's not the same. Not the same. The life coming off that counter of vegetarian food. I get it's just you can see it in the picture, you know. It's nutritious food. It is vitally full of energy. And I feel sympathy for the folks who decide that they want to try being vegetarians, but then, you know, walk the aisles at Whole Foods and think, how do I cook that? How do I, is, can, do they have anything frozen? You know, maybe there's a, like, TV dinner for vegetarians. And because they don't have friends to cook for them, they don't have a community who can, like, say, try this, try this. You know, they fall away. Because, why they don't know how to do it. Or they don't have access to the ingredients. If you want to be a veggie in Toledo, it's more of a challenge. It's, it's not as easy. I mean, there, you, if you, all you have to do is get out of the Safeway, uh, Kroger's, Big Bear shopping center world, and there's the best produce in the world coming out of that rich black earth of the Midwest. But in the, in the food, Inc. world of the Midwest, it's not as easy. Uh, cities like Ann Arbor, it's easier, you know, Madison, because there are other people like you who are trying various things. But by and large, you know, from the farmers up, it's food, Inc. It's chemical fertilizer and big, 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 big trucks. And you don't have much choice. But... Uh, here, my golly, there's what excuses are there? And then when you go to huh, Taiwan, you know, if you give the excuse in Taiwan that you couldn't find vegetarian food, I say to you, <laughs> fooey on you, you're not telling the truth. <laughs> Where we were in Taipei, 70 vegetarian restaurants within one mile. Count them 70, probably today 75, you know. Oh my God, 
Taiwan is the heaven for vegetarians. I, there's, you've never seen the fast food vegetarian restaurants in Taipei produce these incredibly nutritious, delicious meals for five bucks. You know, the fancy ones are off the planet. You know, the fancy. I used, if anybody checked my blog, I took extensive pictures of the the gourmet vegetarian restaurants that people took the monks to. It's like, good grief, you know. And it's the point is to eat harmlessly, to eat plant-based diet. So you have no excuse in Taiwan because there's abundant vegetarian food. Not so easy here in places like mm, Japan. Very difficult. In Japan, everything has fish in it, and mind you, there's not that much access to to the kind of food that the Central Valley of California produces, for example. And so there are places where it's hard. It's hard, but you, pretty much if you set your mind to it. But there's a bit of knowledge you need in order to turn ingredients into vegetarian food, right? And if you don't have that knowledge or friends, it's harder. It's harder. If you have doctors who advise you away from it, ooh, you're in the position of turning your back on medical advice. That takes guts, you know. But many, 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 most doctors do not get right, Sam. They don't get education in nutrition. You know, it's just not part of the curriculum. So, beings who lose the means to liberation, the bodhisattva looks at them and says, "Try some of this. Don't give up. This is easy." So, um, we have a doctor. Uh, he's actually not a doctor. He's not an MD. He's a nutritionist and. Uh, he's a what is PhD in in public health and all. Jeff Novick. If if you wanna if you're in that camp of somebody who would like to be a vegetarian but doesn't know how to go from whole foods to a full stomach, you know, whole foods is great but your stomach is empty. Um, tune in to Jeff Novick. N O V I C K. Just type that right into Google. Jeff has. Uh, Vegan fast food DVD, volume two, was just made. Jeff is a very funny guy, very humorous, and he takes you to the store first in the DVD, and he shows you how to get how to buy the stuff. And the stuff that he buys is not expensive. He buys generic corn and generic. Uh, what else? Uh, polenta and, you know, the best cornmeal and the best kind of salt and the best kind of beans, which five kinds of beans. And, and he shows you how to get this stuff and how to put it together so you can whip up really good meals in no time at all. And the food tastes great. I mean, it's really... From, you have to cut the garlic out. Lots of garlic in there, but that's okay. And it's... Just yummy stuff, and it's it's the 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 hallmark of the foods that are that the real dedicated vegans are making, or what eat a lot and fill your stomach. You know, the hallmark of this food is kind of roll up your sleeves, dig in food. The food that that's in uh, Rip Esselstyn's uh, Plant Strong Engine Two diet is Tex-Mex vegetarian food. I mean, it's like, scarf it down 
feed a fireman food, you know, feed a football player food. It's really, it's not wimpy, you know, curled finger, delicate, rare vegetarian not. It's like roll up your sleeves and dig in vegetarian food. Really yummy. So check that out. Bodhisattva, not that I'm preaching vegetarian eating, mind you, if you like to eat meat. Certainly, there's reasons for that. Do not feel as if I am... Uh, <laughs> who's, who's here tonight? If this was Thursday night, there would be hands in the air saying, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, am I to understand that, that somehow your food preferences have anything to do with meditation? Oh, I forgot where I was. This is American Buddhism, isn't it? Oh, right. Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. So, what are the means to liberation? Ah, okay. That's okay. We're, we're learning as we go. This is all a work in progress, isn't it? So, those were the ten. Sure, way, sure. Move down to the next paragraph here. Pusa Thus the Bodhisattva witnesses the limitless misery and troubles in the realm of living beings. He energizes his mind and makes the following reflection. I should rescue all those beings, liberate them, purify them, take them across and set them in a wholesome place. I should provide them a peaceful dwelling. I should bring them happiness, bring them to know and to see, teach them, guide them to nirvana. All right. Here is the call to action. Okay, we're seeing. Here's this is one of those moments when the the sutra kind of opens a window in the bodhisattva's heart or head or mind and shows us what he's thinking, what she's thinking, and it's amazing because first we saw him looking through the surface of things into the reality that everything is made of stuff that breaks it comes apart he does that so it gave us the x-ray vision into the nature of into the way the world works the way things work the bodhi the sutra showed us that and from the bodhisattva's perspective as he looked at things he said wow you know what things break Things are unreliable. Things are insecure. Things are not a safe refuge. Things are short-lived. You know, he, he, the sutra showed us that. This basically talking about impermanence or transience. Things move through. They don't stop. That was the first one. Then it showed his reaction to that. His reaction to that. Um, I, when I say this, I always skip a step. There's one step in between where he looks at the Buddha Dharma. And he looks at the Buddha Dharma and he says, oh, the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha's teachings are a safe haven. The Buddha Dharma is a supreme insight. It is the path to liberation. So he, he compares the nature of conditioned things and then the Buddha's teachings. And 
he says, well, people I care about haven't seen it yet. And I feel sympathetic. I really understand how they are driving towards a precipice at high speed. That car is going to go over the cliff. They're going to hurt. Okay, so those are the, these are the steps. Now, based on those observations that the Bodhisattva makes, he makes a resolve. This is the next step in his thinking, and the sutra shows us. He says, I'm going to save him. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to wake him up. By golly, dagnabbit. This is the Jimmy Stewart moment. When, you know, the all-American bodhisattva just says, I can't sit still. I have to do something. I'm going to save him. So, here's that moment. And this, the sutra is full of these. Almost every one of the grounds and all the different, uh, the, the ten, ten practices and stuff, there is this moment where the bodhisattva uh, resolves. You know, this is a bugle, bugle call. The bodhisattva says, I'm going to do something. I can't sit still and watch this happen. This requires me to take steps, he says. So, cool. I mean, this is really something. At this point, I'm going to step aside and say, you will hear voices out there that says, oh, the Buddhist sutras are philosophical. The Buddhist sutras are full of Sanskrit. They're really too difficult to understand. They're old, irrelevant. They're abstract. Mostly they say philosophical, the peak of philosophy. Well, I challenge you to find mere philosophy in what we just read. This is an intensely human document. And not only human, it's altruistic. This is an inspiring psychological uh, what do you say uh, inspiration it's an inspiring inspiration that's not well said is it it's it's a um, you could say it's a the kind of the summit of what humanity is capable of this is the peak of goodness where Somebody who has already let go of hopes for the world, having seen the way things are, the way things work, and the misery in clinging, some people would have gone, and therefore, I'm out of here. This world is such a hot and broken place. I mean, who's going to save it? I mean, just look at the nature of it. It's everywhere. Things come apart. But he, she takes one more step and like what? Like a mother would, like a father would, like uh, a doctor would, right? says, no, I can't.
can't quit. It's, it hurts me to see them hurt. I've got to do something about it. So that is noble. This is really noble. It's ennobling. Right? When I read this, I get, geez, that's really something. Could I do that? Would I be able to be as selfless and as connected and as resolved and as you know, impervious to despair? Because that, at that first step, it would be very easy to say, impossible. There are people who, who go to Black Friday sales armed to do harm. They found the woman who pepper sprayed the, the crowd. They, they located her. Right? She, where was that? Was that Arkansas or Missouri? L.A.? Pepper spray incident was L.A.? She went to a Black Friday sale and in order to uh, get to the goodies first, she <laughs> pulled out her can of chemical weapons and sprayed everybody, disabling them so she could grab the discounted bargain item first. Wow. And the shooting happened, made nation, national headlines, where San Leandro, in our backyard, that was just a regular mugging. <laughs> it was regular garden variety, ordinary mugging. It didn't happen in the store. It wasn't, it wasn't customer on customer violence. It was thief on customer violence. It was just a, somebody trying to steal. They waited until, the predators waited until the winners came out the door with their goodies and then mugged them. So, but I just saw a video earlier of, of the uh, individuals who, in order to get a $2 toaster, was it? <coughs> waffle maker. Waffle maker. In order to get a $2 waffle maker, um, rioted. <laughs> and it's uh, the noise coming out of that display. I mean, there's... It's, there, it's a standing room only, and you can see people holding a, a waffle maker, you know, pushing their way through the crowd, trying to get out to the aisle so they can pay for it, you know. And and the uh, the uniform wearing salespeople are trying to keep order, and they they don't know what to do, and the noise as they're going for the bargain, you know, the bargain. And somebody made the comment. Oh, come on, that's India any day of the year. <laughs> yeah, but we're not used to that. We're used to, excuse me, you know, getting, we're all in line here. Just don't wait your turn. No. <laughs> Give me that one Get out of my way. By golly. So, uh, now, someone in the room, I won't tell you who it was, took part in Black Friday. Now, maybe more than one, maybe a few of us took part in Black Friday shopping. And the thinking is what? There is a rationale. The thinking is, if you are, if you're skillful at it, if you know how to do it, and you're skillful, you can actually save several hundred dollars on Christmas gifts. And if you have a long gift list, suppose you come from a family of six kids, you know, you're going to buy every single kid 
full retail price for the toy that they want, and if you don't get them, they're upset. No, you want to get the cheaper one. So families go, and they split up. They don't all focus on the same. They go to different sales. And apparently, the case lot items are covered in plastic, black plastic. You don't know until the tweet go, until the whistle, which is which. So you have to rush. And the, the skillful shoppers will get there in advance and tear a hole in the black plastic and look and say, oh, Xbox. Then they know. They know where to go to grab it. But it is a celebration or what? It's, that is, it's a sacred. It's, it, it's our church. It's a, the, the, the retail church our, where we worship. It's clever shopping, marketing. It shows many aspects of American culture. Our material, our attitude towards stuff and towards being smart shoppers, getting a bargain. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, just take today's, yesterday's uh, phenomena across the country and document it. And then when we're all retired and living in China, you know, or in Canada, show it to the, the staid Canadians. <laughs> These people were nuts. Okay, so that's... And then did you see that there were sweet photos of our beloved president, bless his heart, Barack Obama, taking Sasha and Malia to a local bookstore, Kirkendorfer's bookstore, about three blocks from the White House. Why? Saturday is what day? What's today? Local day. Small business day. Where were you people? <laughs> Un-American. Black Friday is big box retail day, Walmart, Kmart, you know. But today was small business day, and President Obama took the girls to a local bookstore. Did. Walked in, shook hands with the owners, you know, waved everybody, and they, they got uh, the, the article listed the books they bought. He bought three books. And he looks like a dad taking his daughters to a bookstore. It's real pictures, a real guy doing a real thing, you know, telling, taking them to a store, and the store looks like a real bookstore, and it's, it's nice to see. So he was celebrating, supporting local small business. So uh, that's, that's what makes our country great, by all means. The Bodhisattva has been thinking a lot as he looks out at the world and says... I, what does he say? The Bodhisattva witnesses Wuliang, Zhong Sheng Jie, the realm of living beings, Wuliang, Ku Nao, no measure, misery, affliction. Right? So the immeasurable, no way to measure how much pain beings go through. The Bodhisattva sees that, the limitless amount of suffering involved in the realm of, the realms, plural, of living beings. Fa Da Jing Jin, brings forth big energy, vigor. The bodhisattva gets going. The bodhisattva at this point does not, get, does not fall into despair, doesn't get cynical, doesn't look down at stupid living beings, you know? None of those reactions. The bodhisattva doesn't have those 
those yin negative responses. Instead, the bodhisattva gets into action. Just says, I'm going to figure something out. Now, the sutra puts a quote. They show us the words the bodhisattva says or thinks at that moment. He says, These living beings, all these living beings, and then we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten shoulds. Ten calls to arms, ten bugle blasts. I should what? Jiu save them. Tuo liberate them. Jing purify them. Du take them across. Zhuo zhao shan chu set them down in a wholesome place. Ling anju so they can stay there peacefully. Make them happy. Give them right knowledge and viewpoints. Tame, tame them, regulate them, put them in shape, and niapan. I should nirvanize them. I should take them to nirvana. There's pasteurize, homogenize, and nirvanize. I should niapan them. I should nirvanize them. According to the grammar, that's what it would be. I should lead them, take them to nirvana, says the bodhisattva. Okay, look at that. What kind of heart says that? Right? The Bodhisattva, I'm going to save them, liberate them, purify them, take them across, put them in a peaceful place so they can stay there in, in, in tranquility, make them happy, Shh. clean their minds so they, you know, like, like an optometrist does, they adjust the different lenses until you, you can see, oh, on the chart, E, B, Z, F, 7, 5, A, L. You can you get the lenses and suddenly that vision chart comes into sharp focus. That's what it is. So their knowledge and views are correct. I should um, adjust. It means to, some people say to tame them, like you tame a wild horse. Probably it means to just to um, balance, bring them to balance and harmony. And then I should take them to nirvana. What a challenge. I mean, that's a big job that the Bodhisattva has just given himself. But yes, that's it. It's a call to action. Who is he talking to? Himself. Herself. The Bodhisattva is saying this to herself. I should do this. At great personal expense and difficulty. The work involved in doing this and the length of time involved in accomplishing this challenge is uh, staggering. Because mostly, if you know, if you know, looking at myself, um, vows are mostly one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two steps back. Mostly, the promises, find, find a way around your promises. Find an explanation, a rationale to not keep the promises you make. <coughs> Even when they're made in front of the Buddha. Right? Mostly, we have a good idea and retreat. You know, get inspired and then forget it. And what is it that 
covers over those inspirations and those resolves, it's mostly habit. It's just habit. The resolves are real. Those moments of clarity, those insights of, yes, me too. I'm really going to learn Chinese. Yeah. Boy, I'm going to quit coffee. Maybe. I have to have your fingers crossed. I'm going to quit. I'm really going to stop using profanity. I'm going to clean up my mouth. Let those four-letter words creep in one by one for emphasis, just for a little punch, because all your friends do. You know. And nah, I want to stop that. And you give yourself a challenge, you know. I'm going to find a way to live long, let live longer with the ones I have instead of upgrading. Software, iPods, phones, shoes. Imagine giving yourself a challenge, no new shoes until you need them. Ah, oh, come on, Dharma Master. Give us a break. So, what would it be? What is yours? You know, you give yourself a resolve. You just say, I'm not going to get angry again. Or not going to get angry at her or him again. I'm going to use another method. And we see that as clear and it's just so, you know, every Saturday night, maybe this is the place where we see clearly. Maybe it's that week of retreat at City of 10,000 Buddhas or uh, at the Vipassana 10-day retreat. Or maybe we go spend time with Grandma. And when we're with Grandma, we feel so grounded and rooted and connected to something bigger. And then, then, I'm happy. What happens? It's funny because it's subtle and it's slow, but there's this dust. This dust of the daily stuff that kind of the air goes out of the balloon and the light goes out of the that moment. Sometimes they happen in a dream and we think, boy, that's really clear. I'll write that down as soon as I wake up in the morning, right? Morning comes, forget you ever had it, right? So... This is the way we are, right? The Bodhisattva has this sustained clarity, the challenge that he gives himself. I should, meaning I will do these things. And then it tells us what he's going to do. So this is really powerful stuff. And as I say, it's so nice of the sutra to like open this window so that we get to see how a Bodhisattva thinks real, kind-hearted, spiritually elevated being who's got a perspective that includes not just people, but all kinds of creatures. If you... Now, let's relate it. Suppose... um, we applied this to the environment. And the Bodhisattva was looking at 
you know, let's say the people that and the situations that PETA looks at. P-E-T-A. PETA is uh, in many ways unwise. PETA does stuff that makes you wince. But I believe that a lot of the 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 actions that PETA takes come from individuals who have similar moments where they say they see for example cruelty done to animals and say that's got to stop and when it's done in the name of profit for companies remember they used to test shampoo on rabbits just hold the rabbit's eyes open and drip the shampoo and if the rabbit screams it's not tear-free shampoo well great you know anybody ask the rabbit and if you've seen all it takes is seeing one of those videos I've seen them there are shock videos that circulate of animal testing you know real footage from the labs that when you see them you go stop don't do that and the scientists it's a salary you know you're in their white suits it's just an animal oh lord so there are people who you know seeing that or the videos a couple of them circulated of the downer cows in fact laws were passed after was it Hormel or Smithfield uh, the the guerrilla videos, people who snuck in to the factory farms and took the videos of the, the workers snapping, basically, and just abusing the animals like they were inanimate things and then posting the videos and letting people see what goes on. Not all the time, but because these are extreme maltreatment. And never mind the killing, but, you know, before and after. Um, and the uh, having people just react in horror. So a lot of the time, the things that PETA does, um, I think, are unwise because they, they provoke counter-reactions. But you know that there are folks in organizations like that who say, stop it. I'm going to save those animals. If I don't, who will? We're not going to wait for legislators to pass some law. You know, we've got to save them now because it's going on every day, every night, every day, every night. And so they, they act, maybe out of that same kind of mind. Now, what's the difference between, let's say, outrageous PETA actions and the Bodhisattva here? Clearly, uh, one difference would be an absolute, total commitment to harmlessness, ahimsa, harmlessness to all. And two would be clear seeing on cause and effect. That is to say, understanding that Sometimes, if you, the cops and the robbers are both assurers, 
You know about that notion, Ashuras, these beings that love to fight? Master Hua would say, you know, if you want to identify Ashuras, look at the cops and the robbers chasing, you know. Look at the generals on both sides, both of whom say God is on our side. Right? Look at Rommel and Montgomery struggling in the desert of North Africa with their tanks, just coming together, you know. Look at both sides of the football champions, you know, assure us. So, uh, sometimes you want to, you know, say, PETA, you're creating just as much karma as. No, not as much as the killers, but in terms of skillful, you know, killing is killing, and they're protesting killing. But there's a way to do it that puts out the fire. There's a way to do it that prolongs the fire, that adds fuel to the flames. So skill is knowing how to do it. And um, if you... go to war to end war, the result is the same. So, you know, you, you want to motivate it to put an end to suffering. There is more and less skillful ways to do it. The Bodhisattva sees a way to do it that um, is rooted in ahimsa, harmlessness, rooted in vows to end suffering, and finds a way to put an end to the long-term suffering. He makes those reflections, how to put an end to that kind of suffering. And we'll do so. We'll find a way. They're, they're being really good. You know, they're, they're trying really hard. I mean, this is dry stuff if you're three years old, right? <laughs> you're ten years old. But we have some examples of young guys who are like hanging in there. So I'm, I'm not too worried. But it is the job for the moms or the grandmoms to maybe take them in the back and tell them a story. But they're welcome anyway. We're glad. that they can hang in here for 90 minutes, I couldn't do that. In fact, as I'm sitting here, I can't do it. No, no. <laughs> Okay, so there we go. Bodhisattva gives him or herself ten challenges. Ten challenges. I should do this. Now, between the resolve to say rescue living beings and rescuing living beings, there is lifetimes of stories of pushing living beings forward and having them turn their back and run the other way. You know, offering them candy and having them pick up poison instead. So, uh, as Master Hua would say, don't think it's easy being a Shurfu. <laughs> being a Shurfu is no fun. Don't think it's easy being the Buddha. Being the Buddha is a lot of fun, but not entirely. Right? Look at the Buddha. You know, His cousin tried to kill him multiple times. The Buddha was slandered. The Buddha starved. The Buddha had headaches. The Buddha uh, had to work to, to teach the Dharma. 
And yet, and yet what? I should rescue all these beings, liberate them, purify them, take them across, set them in a wholesome place. The Bodhisattva resolves that until they're taken across, he's not free. Why? Because he's connected. He, she sees the connection. He sees it clearly. It's not an idea that we're basically interconnected. He sees it at the DNA cellular level. There's no difference. Now, interestingly enough, DNA research has shown us that we and chimps and amoeba are 98.5% identical. It's only the last tiny chromosomes that make us humans and make them monkeys and make them protozoa. Sentient creatures are utterly related in the chain of, you know, XY, 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 XY to the very So that's interesting that science is like proving. And there's all these people love to point to the to the verses that show up in various corners of the Buddha Dharma. And there's one of them that says uh, in our 53 mantras, in, our, in the Mahayana tradition, we learn these 53 mantras that we use all day long uh, in certain situations. And one is when we drink a glass of water. In a single glass of water, the Buddha saw 10,000 living beings. If I should drink this without reciting a mantra, it amounts to killing. It amounts to, to taking the lives of sentient creatures, you recite the mantra. So here is, you know, a saying in the tradition that indicates the Buddha's, gives us a clue into the Buddha's vision. A single drop of water has countless, what, microscopic lives. So we're related. We're related. Okay, so there we are. Here's the Bodhisattva taking them all the way to nirvana. So after you read this, how can you get angry at your husband? Right? How can you lie to your wife? Can't. Because that's, that's just not doing, you know. It's going the other way. This is how... how the Bodhisattva sees the world. Okay. What's coming up next is um, he analyzes how he's going to do it. If you flip over to page 48 and 49, let's take a look there. Preview of coming attractions, right? He we get a lot of, of Buddhist technical terms and the challenge for us will be to break it down to make sense of it. But when you do, things like unobstructed wisdom of liberation, awakening to the reality of dharmas, the light of wisdom from cessation of action and creation, um, investigation through the wisdom of clever, decisive contemplation, skillful learning. Right? So there's a formula here. It's like, A comes from B, B comes from C, C comes from D, and ultimately D comes from X, Y, Z. But when we get there, it's like, I see. So what's coming up next is after, after 
the Bodhisattva gives himself or herself that challenge. I'm going to save him. He says, here's how. So it's more than pie in the sky, wishful thinking. It's active insight. It's the method. It's really scientific, that is to say, empirical. This is, this is how it works. Very cool. Okay, good stuff. Not merely philosophy. On the uh, back of your... Oh, by the way, could I ask everybody? Anybody's songbook have the name Hongshur up here in the corner? Check your songbook. You get five bonus points for finding... Okay. Okay. My my copy got swallowed up in the, the everybody's copies, and it has some highlighting in it, so I want to keep it. We need to make a wish, dedicate merit. How's how's the flooding in Thailand? Anybody follow? Did did Bangkok survive? Partially. But so the, the their attempts to save it worked partially. Great. So is the, the poor prime minister getting getting off let off the hook or is the pressure still on? Because the, the water hasn't receded, right? It hasn't. Boy, being prime minister is not fun. She takes the off takes office, and then the floods come. Poor Mayor Jean Kwan. She takes office, and then Occupy Oakland comes. It's hard to be a female public servant, I guess. Everybody blames you. So we can still transfer merit to Thailand, a Buddhist country suffering.
and 